Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Tough act to follow, huh, guys? I think we need to practice. And I think we've been sitting still for a while, so let's stand. Let's pretend that we're children. So the first thing we want to do is we want to be practicing in a posture, a two-point posture, with our back straight and our muscles relaxed. So how are we going to do that? We're going to zip ourselves up. One hand in front, one hand in back. You ready? Follow me. Zip. Silence, you're on the top. Other hand in front, other hand in back. Follow me. Zip. Silence, you're on top. Eyes and ears on me. Good job, guys. Deep breath. Shoulders relaxed. Two more times, no words. I'll know you're ready when your arms, one hand in front, one hand in back. Back straight, muscles relaxed. Knees soft. Last time I'll know you're ready when you have one hand in front, one hand in back. Thank you, everybody. All right, before I forget, we have Jessica is in the house. Where's Jessica Mori? If you're interested in mindfulness in teens, she is here, so she is a great person for you to connect with. The title of this talk is Crap, I Forgot to Be Mindful Again. Is the mindful parenting movement setting parents up to fail? Anybody read Slate? The magazine Slate, which is a very smart magazine, um, online magazine, did an article recently by Hannah Rosen, and this was the title of her article. Crap, I forgot to be mindful again. I laughed out loud when I read it. How many times have you thought, oh, crap, I forgot to be mindful again? So I was really delighted to read the article. However, I thought it was an important one for all of us to look at because it really does talk about how, many, how the mindfulness movement is a little confusing. Actually, it doesn't specifically address how the mindfulness movement is a little confusing, but some of the things that she's talking about in that article certainly support what many of us have been saying, that the mindfulness movement has become a little bit confusing. So I encourage all of you to read it, and I want to talk a little bit about what we can do to help clarify things. First is the big question. Now, I know Vince was talking about bundling and putting things together, right, and uh, convergence. And I'm, um, and then unbundling and taking things apart. And at least from my perspective in the work that we've been doing, I haven't been such a fan of the unbundling part of things. I've been much more of a fan of the keeping things together. And so let's talk about that and talk about why. Now, when we keep things together, when we don't give up one of these parts of the bundle, whether it's practice, whether it's worldview or community, that doesn't mean that we keep it in the language of classical Buddhism. 
that doesn't mean we keep it in old-fashioned language that isn't necessarily applicable to young kids and their families and their teachers. So we'll talk more about that later. But still, we keep all of the components. We keep the, every element of the bundle. So the real question is, what is mindfulness? Last night, Vince read a couple of different definitions of mindfulness, right? And they were quite different. And that's something we're seeing out there now in the world, especially with this new popularization of mindfulness, which is certainly a blessing and a curse. One of the problems that we have with this is that in many respects, we're comparing apples to oranges. Often what we're talking about are very different things when we're talking about mindfulness and mindfulness programs. And I would encourage you, especially those of you who have some skepticism about mindfulness and the secularization of mindfulness, uh, to take a look at the programs individually, to look at them separately, so that, people, so that you recognize that the programs are really quite a bit different. And many of them are being compared to each other but it is a lot like comparing apples and oranges. Apples and oranges are both good for you, right? They're both fruits, they're healthy foods, they're healthy snacks. So it's not that one is necessarily bad, one is necessarily good, but they are quite a bit different and it's important to keep that in mind. When we talk about mindfulness in our work with kids and families, we talk about mindfulness as a tool of investigation. It's a stance of attention. It's a tool of investigation. And we look at, at, at things, we look at present moment experience, we look at our experiences in a very specific way, with attention, with emotional balance, and with compassion. We talk about that as the ABCs of mindfulness. What happens when you look at life experience with attention, with balance, and compassion? What happens is we end up living life a little bit differently. It's a different way of life. So mindfulness, from our perspective, is a tool of investigation through which we view, view life experience with attention, with balance, and compassion. And as a result, we live life a little bit differently. We call the way of living that we live, when we're living mindfully, love with legs. We take what we learn through our attention, through what we're watching, our inner and outer experience, out into the world in service. It's love with legs. So when we talk about Mindfulness, though, and teaching mindfulness and teaching this way of life, we look at it as a three-legged stool. We teach three different components. We teach a practice component, we teach a worldview component, and we have a community component. What happens when one of those components is missing? The stool tends to tumble over. So let me pause for a minute and tell you a little bit about how I got here tonight and how we ended up working with this three-legged stool approach. I was a lawyer, I was a practicing lawyer for pretty close to 20 years. Um, I had young kids at the time that I started practicing with my kids. There wasn't a lot of mindfulness and kids work out there, not a lot of activities. And so I was a student of Ken McLeod's, who I know has also been a teacher and a Buddhist geek for many, many years. And he had a strong interest in attention. And I used some of the attention exercises that he had been teaching us, the practices, and I modified them to work with my children. And then ultimately, I started volunteering. Over the next several years, I volunteered in schools. I volunteered in community centers. I volunteered at the Boys and Girls Club. And ultimately, I wrote a book about it. After I wrote the book, something interesting started happening. I started being asked to go in and teach other people 
how to be mindful, how to practice mindfulness with kids. Now, before, I had worked with other people who were practicing mindfulness with kids, but they were all practitioners. They all had the same type of adult contemplative practice experience I did, so there wasn't a lot of uh, definition that needed to happen. It was just about how to create this material, revise it so that it is secular, yet still effective, keeping all those component parts, and how to bring those practices in an age-appropriate, fun, and, um, and still effective way to the kids themselves. I was very, very accustomed to working with what we call conscript audiences, which are people who don't want to be there. Because a lot of the kids had no interest in being in our classes, but they were there. And that was okay. We learned how to deal with that. What was different for me after I had written the book and I was starting to be asked by schools and by other organizations to come in and train adults is I had never before, and none of my colleagues at that time who worked with adults had before, been asked to come in and teach conscript audiences of adults. Because they were there not because they were interested in meditation, they were there because their boss thought it was a good idea. So how were we going to approach these adult groups in a way that would be meaningful to them instead of just losing a huge group of these people right off the bat because they weren't interested in practice. I talk about it this way. I know that it would be fantastic if I jogged every day. I just have read the research. I have been told jogging is fantastic for you. I have even tried it. It will never happen. The day will never come that I get up in the morning and jog every day. But I have found other types of exercise, other types of aerobic exercise that are useful for me. In the same way, I found myself I had to be realistic that if I was going into faculties, if I was going of, of schools, if I was going into work in other organizations where health, health organizations where there were people who were being asked by their bosses to come to my workshop, that I needed to be realistic that not all of them would practice. So how could I teach something that would be useful to everybody? And then, of course, even though they didn't have a lot of practice experience, there was a real interest in starting to practice with kids that afternoon. So that's the other tricky thing. The enthusiasm is so great. The enthusiasm is so exciting that people want to practice mindfulness with kids immediately before having practice experience themselves and possibly never wanting to have practice experience at all. So these are the things that we need to start balancing to be able to do an effective job of serving the people in front of us now. One of the really interesting and most important teachings I ever had was from Ruth Gilbert, who told me when I first started working with kids, serve the child in front of you now. And now my um, approach had to change a little bit. I was now serving the teachers, I was serving the nurses, I was serving the healthcare professionals, the therapists in front of me now, and how could I best serve them? So the three-legged stool turned out to be the best way I found to reach everybody, to give everybody a way in. Now, when teaching kids, and I would even say when teaching anybody, it's very, very important to be able to cut through the theory and create a certain set of skills that you're trying to teach, that you're trying to um, pass on to your, to your students, and teach them in a way that's scaffolded, teach them in a way that grows upon each other. Now you'll see here, I know there's a lot of criticism of the popular mindfulness movement, but I suspect that when you see this, you'll see that we do have pretty much
all of the different aspects of the classical training in this circle of life skills and strategies that is nested within three pillars of ethics. These three pillars of ethics are common to most contemplative traditions. I pulled these out of the Dalai Lama's book, Beyond Religion. The first pillar of ethics, restraint, fits very nicely in with our first strategy of just plain stopping or pausing. If we can teach our kids just that, that when you're feeling a little bit overly excited, if you're feeling a little overwhelmed, if you can just stop, if you can just pause, move your, focus your attention, move, choose it, choose where you're gonna move your attention, move your attention away from what's upsetting you, away from what's exciting you just a little too much, too much birthday. The Bernstein Bears book is one of my favorite books. Move your attention away from what you're thinking into your body. That has a way of quieting. When you quiet, you tend to see your experience more clearly, which brings us into the second pillar of ethics, cultivating positive qualities and behaviors. And we can help kids or the people or our adults can possibly do this themselves, sometimes reframe what they see because we all know that people have biases into a caring and connected worldview. So focus at the, is at the center of this because focusing is necessary to all of these different strategies or life skills. It's very tough to be able to see clearly if you can't focus. It's very tough to be able to reframe, look at something from a different point of view if you can't focus. It's very tough to move beyond whatever is exciting you or upsetting you into a different view that is more aligned toward caring and connecting if you can't focus or concentrate. And we all know that there are many, many classical practices that have been developed over thousands of years that help with each one of these life skills, especially focusing. So let's take a look at this three-legged stool again. Practice, let's start with practice. With kids, we really stay in the neighborhood with the young kids, or at least we start with very simple anchoring practices. Going back to what we were talking about before, the idea is that if you can anchor your attention into a physical sensation, it simply has a way of calming the nervous system, allowing you to see things a little bit more clearly, right? So we teach anchoring practices. And how do we teach this concept to children, this concept that we can get overly excited or upset and not see our experience clearly? We teach it through some pretty simple um, techniques. How do I get this video to go forward? Oh, okay, so we started clear, and then we talk about how the baking soda, which is what I poured in there, is like the stress and strain of daily life, right? And when that baking soda is in the water, it tends to cloud your perception. It's very tough to see through. So we'll have the kids take a look and look through the water and see whether or not they can actually see all the way through. And then what happens is that if we stop and feel our breathing or listen to a sound, when that baking soda is clouding our perception, it has a way of clearing the water and settling the soda. But here's a question for you and probably the most important question. Has that baking soda gone away entirely? No, it hasn't. If that baking soda is the stress and strain of daily life, 
I wish I could tell you that these practices would make that stress, would make that strain go away entirely, but it doesn't. It's still there, but with our mind a little bit more clear, with our nervous system a little bit more quiet, we're able to make choices that go toward caring and connecting, right? Choices that are in the best interest of ourselves and other people and those around us. Now, for the educators in the audience, you might be thinking, oh, that still seems a little conceptual for young kids. I bet they really don't get that. It's still very much in the mind. It's difficult for people to understand. So I want to show you this video. A mom sent me, who I have never met, who just saw a glitter ball practice on the internet. Well, he's basically repeating there exactly what I was saying. If you get upset, the glitter gets all worked up like that. And what happens if you stop and feel your breathing? You tend to calm and look, the glitter settles. You're not upset anymore. You calm down. And now I can see clearly again. Now look at how calm and clear he is. Calm he is now. Now watch what happens next. He's telling us how calm he is. And he's telling us how we can see clearly. And now he's starting to get all a little worked up again. And he's making that ball a little bit worked up and he's shaking the glitter. And this is an important thing to remember because when I first went into the Boys and Girls Club to do my first class, I was absolutely convinced all these children would just sit around me quietly and they would all be calm and walk out very calmly. And of course, I was wrong about that. But, but this is more consistent with what happens early on. The children learn to calm themselves and then they can get themselves worked up again, but they have the um, tools to calm themselves again. And the more that we do that, the more that we build the capacity to be able to calm ourselves so that we can see our experience more clearly through moving our attention away from what we're thinking about, away from what we're upset about, or what we're overly excited about into our body for a nice relief, for a nice break from what we're thinking about. Okay, so let's go back again. So that's practice. Now, of course, as we um, move into the older years, we go beyond the anchoring practices, more into awareness practices. And that is where we have a little bit more um, concern about who's actually teaching these practices. Because those, those anchoring practices of noticing when you're feeling a little bit off, taking that opportunity to take your attention and move it more into a physical sensation and feeling calm, that doesn't require as much training in meditation practice as some of the other practices that have more to do with open awareness. Um, but for the purposes of this presentation and today with working with the young kids, we really do work mostly with the anchoring practices. So now let's look at worldview. Worldview became very, very important to me when I started working with those conscript adults who really didn't want to be in, the, uh, in services or who really did want to help and really did want to teach mindfulness but just realistically weren't going to practice. They would talk about their practice being inconsistent or them being bad meditators, but they really did want to participate in practicing mindfulness with kids. And so we started teaching more directly aspects of the worldview in very clear, secular language. And so we developed a chart of over 40 universal concepts that are common to many, many contemplative traditions. And here are just a few of them that are very are, are applicable and early ones that we teach with kids. 
The first one is non-dualistic thinking. Very important concept to teach our kids. The idea that everything is not necessarily black and white, or right or wrong, or good or bad. Is it possible that they can be both at once? Is it possible that there could be two sides to the same coin? So teaching children this universal concept early on has a way of opening things up for them. And teaching teachers this has a way of opening things up for the teachers and for the other adult therapists or other people who are trying to work with kids in a more mindful way. The other thing that's important about teaching these universal concepts very directly is one of the things that really makes a difference in how these kids learn mindfulness and what they leave the mindfulness class with an understanding of is how these practices are embodied by the teachers. And so the teacher, whether it's a facilitator or whether it's a classroom teacher, really has to have some understanding of these concepts and be responding to the questions that come from the kids in a way that's consistent with these concepts and worldview the idea that not everybody needs to go to Harvard, the idea that not everything is cool or uncool, that there are gradations of experience, that there is a way to think, hold these conflicting ideas in mind at the same time. That's a very important concept to teach kids, and it's one that's very freeing for them and for their teachers. The idea that everything changes, another important concept to teach kids. Another very useful, helpful, huge relief for kids when they start to understand that right now things may really feel pretty lousy, but in time, in time, they'll change. Just hang on. Patience, teaching kids patience, especially in connection with effort, is extremely important. Interdependence, the fact that we're all connected. Another extremely important worldview, uh, aspect of the worldview to teach not just the children, but those who are working with the children and the entire family system. So that would include the parents. Lastly is community. We heard that from Noah Levine, that when he was talking about building um, his refuge program in uh, Los Angeles, that one of the things that the 12-step program had that he needed to replicate was a sense of community. And the same is very true in connection with our work with kids and with families. One of the reasons why is this worldview that we're teaching kids, this worldview that we're suggesting is quite a bit different than the worldview that is um, embodied by most of our success-oriented parents or many success-oriented schools. It may not be true here because this is such a cool community, but I come from Los Angeles and have taught in a lot of uh, big cities where there is a real sense that every child needs to go to Harvard to be successful. Everyone has to work, 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 work to be successful. There's a sense of everything good is about growing bigger as opposed to growing smaller and growing deeper. And so we are suggesting that there is a less dualistic way of looking at this. We're suggesting that some kids do belong in Harvard and they thrive on that type of stress and they do extremely well. Other kids don't. And they thrive where they are and one is not necessarily better than the other. Some people thrive on being extremely busy and building enormous organizations and we have a lot to be grateful for for those people. Other people also make an enormous impact by growing smaller, growing deeper, doing things a little bit different. And there's a whole lot in between. So this worldview of shifting our perspective away from the go, 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 bigger is better, 
worldview of much of our society to one that is more nuanced and more, in my belief, in my experience, true, requires a great deal of support. And that's why community and the building of community is so important to this three-legged stool. So when we build community, besides helping people understand and have support in the worldview, it's also important when you're working with parents and when we're, you're working with adults, uh, trying to bring mindfulness to children and teens for the first time, that you're able to give them ongoing support in how this work actually works in practice. One of the things we've learned is we can teach a lot in a weekend seminar. We can teach a lot in a full week training program. But where the rubber meets the road, where people really need the support, is when they get back into their professional environment, when they get back into their home, and they need to start applying this with the kids. And the kids come back and say, it doesn't work. I'm bored. I'm miserable. This ongoing community of support of people who've done this already and can just say, yeah, that's normal, and here's a couple of strategies you can do to help you with that. That is very, very important for any of these programs to be effective. We can have a lot of enthusiasm after a weekend, but the ongoing support in practice is just crucial. Empathy is one of the very important aspects of the worldview and community that we teach. Kindness, being kind to other people. And compassion, remembering that kindness to self and kindness to others are two very, very important things. When working with caregivers, what's the first thing that goes? I bet we've got some caregiver uh, providers here. People, caregivers, tend not to take care of themselves. They will do anything for their kids. They will do anything, even something as crazy as meditate. But actually take the time to do that for themselves. It's a very tough sell. But if we teach them that by taking care of themselves, they take care of others, and by taking others, they take care of themselves, another one of my favorite classical teachings, if we can teach them that, then we can help them be more balanced and rested so that they can embody this worldview we're talking about. Gratitude. Being grateful not just for our new Xbox, but also being grateful for the food that we eat, for the air that we breathe, for the planet that we live in, for our brothers and sisters. So teaching gratitude and expressing it either silently or out loud. And service, very important that we take what we're learning on the equivalent of the cushion, even in the secular world, take it out into the world. What we learn in our introspective practice is extremely important. The capacities we build in our introspective practice are extremely important. Those life skills, focusing, stopping, choosing what we're going to focus on, the quieting and the seeing, reframing toward a worldview that is of caring and connecting. These very specific life skills are extremely important, especially when we take it out into the world. So there we are again with our circle of strategies that is nestled within a three pillars of ethics. We need that practice. We need the worldview. We need the community. One of those are gone. Stool tends to topple over. And lastly, we have some tips for you guys or for anybody who's interested. Buy-in is a huge problem when working with kids. It's very, and also, frankly, when working with adults who aren't so interested in being there. Um, and we have found that it is extremely helpful 
to couch the work that we do, this inner work we do, as mental fitness, which is similar to physical fitness. So for instance, it is not uncommon for one of your early adopters to be big, big believer in mindfulness, to just think mindfulness is the best thing since sliced bread. And then one day for him or her to come in and say, Mrs. KG, mindfulness doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I was so, so upset. And I tried to stop and feel my breathing. I tried to listen to the sounds, and it didn't help. Very, very common. How many of you have been upset and tried to practice, and it didn't actually settle you down? Yeah, it actually sometimes can jazz you up a little bit more, right? Maybe it's not a movement practice then. It's a little bit more important. So a child will come in and say something like that to me. And I'll tell them a story about how I am working with a personal trainer and how I just started working with that personal trainer Coincidentally, about the same time he or she started practicing mindfulness. And I'll say, here, feel my muscle. Can't you see it's getting a little bit bigger? It's getting a little bit bigger. And the child usually will and say, yeah, yeah, you've got a muscle there. And then I'll say, do you think I could go out and pick up that car? And I'll say, no, your muscle isn't strong enough yet to pick up a car. So I'll talk to the child and I'll say, well, your mindfulness muscle, your attention muscle, your concentration muscle is pretty young yet. It's just getting built. And so when you try to use it in these extremely difficult situations, sometimes you haven't yet developed the capacity, the strength to really pick up that car, to really hold that emotion. But you just keep trying. You just keep going with it. You learn the different practices that work in different ways, and you'll see what happens. So with buy-in, if we compare it with physical fitness, I'm working with a trainer, I built up this muscle, see what happened, it's the same with the muscles in your mind. It takes some time, it takes some effort, it will get stronger, the capacity will happen. That comparison between physical fitness and mental fitness, I have found to be very, very useful working in a secular context. Keep it fun, keep it simple, and keep your sense of humor. The last thing we want is for these kids to say, oh, and then they made me sit still and be quiet and taught me mindfulness. We want it to be fun. And how do we keep it fun? We keep it moving. We use colorful objects. We, we move, we dance, we sing, we lie down. All sorts of things to make it more fun. Stealth mindfulness. We don't have to say the word mindful all the time. Sometimes you'll go into places that are very enthused about mindfulness and it's mindful, 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 mindful. I mean, that word is going to turn the kids off pretty quickly and it just starts to grate. What we do is we embody mindfulness. We act in a mindful way as best we can. When we are not being mindful, we mention it. Crap, I forgot to be mindful again, to reference Hannah Rosen's article. When we are mindful when we embody it, it has a more powerful effect teaching than talking about it all the time. And lastly, wisdom comes not from being perfect, but from being present. And to really remember that, again referencing that first card and the Hannah Rosen article, we don't expect ourselves to be mindful all the time, whatever that is. Whatever that is, we don't expect that. We don't expect ourselves to be perfect. The exercise, the practice, is going back over and over again and beginning again to be present. So that is my prepared talk. And if we have some time, if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to um, answer. Um, I work with a lot of uh, parents and families. And um, 
When it comes to these kinds of practices, one of the things that people uh, struggle with a lot is the community aspect. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering for parents and families that maybe aren't involved in a school that's doing this or uh, in a group that's doing it, uh, maybe they're in a rural area, how would you recommend for them to build some community around these practices? Yeah, I think, I think that's an excellent question and it applies to schools as well. I, there is nothing more powerful than a parent group. Nothing more powerful at all, whether it's in a school or whether it's on your own. And what we encourage every group that we go in to work with is that they're a parent sitting group be organized. It can be right after drop-off, right after the kids are dropped off on school, or on a weekend morning. Um, but a sitting group for just parents to spend some time practicing together, and then afterwards talking about their experiences. Something that simple has a way of developing interest, developing capacity, the capacity to practice, and also working with creativity. One of the things to remember with these exercises and these activities that are now coming out, and there's a lot of them, is we all made them up. We all made them up. We came out of a practice background. They didn't exist. And so we practice in the context of schools, with therapists, with educators. But we used our own creativity to create these practices that were working for us and that we thought were consistent with our teaching objectives, whether we were teaching patience, whether we were teaching concentration, whether we were teaching open awareness, whatever we were teaching. And what we have found in working with schools or working with parents is that Parents, especially of young children and teachers, are so imaginative and have so much creativity that if we can teach them the teaching objectives, if we can teach them the universal concepts, if we can teach them the, the fundamental aspects of the practices that they are hoping to uh, cultivate in the children, then the creativity happens and people start coming up with mindfulness practices or mindfulness games on the, on the spot that they can integrate into what they're doing in their real life. So the idea of starting a parent group, developing your own personal practice, and from that direct experience, from your direct experience of what you feel moving outward to see what, what resources are already existing or what you can help develop yourself with the aid of an adult teacher or a, a, an adult practice community, then what can happen is you can develop a creative kind of grassroots, even small or large community, and from that, all else will grow. Does that make sense? I've seen it happen so many times. So the starting of a small group of parents sitting together often leads into that group bringing their children. But you really have to start as the adult group first, develop your own personal practice if you don't have one already, Rely on adult teachers to help you develop that practice. And then as adults, practice leading those activities as you would lead them for children. And from there, from your own direct experience, move out to work with the kids. Thank you for a really wonderful presentation. Um, all of this material comes from spiritual traditions, which are... Um, viewed in the society as quote religions and you know potentially of you know that religious nature yeah. uh, so how how do you deal with the tension between explicitly religious or spiritual material in a public school I assume you're working in public schools mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know how do you deal with that 
Well, I, my background, I've got a couple aspects of my background that have been helpful in trying to figure this out. One is that I'm a lawyer, and so I'm extremely careful about language, about what we bring in, what, you know, all, all of the different aspects of the work from what it looks like to what it sounds like to what we say. I'm extremely careful about it. And my own personal background is helpful. My father was Catholic. My mother was Presbyterian. When they got married, my, parent, my grandparents were quite upset. There was a huge commotion. And my, my father ultimately had to give up his religion. Um, yet he was the more religious of the two. So I saw from a very early on... Uh, how disruptive uh, these differences can be. I then fell in love with and married a Jew, and our two kids were born bat mitzvah, and I never converted. So, you know, I kind of carried the tradition on, and I found that in every one of those places, whether it was going to mass with my grandparents, singing in the church choir in the Presbyterian church, going to high holy days with my in-laws, and ultimately my kids' bar and bat mitzvahs, that there was a commonality of concepts and experiences and that is what we draw from, these common experiences that you can find either in a spiritual tradition or taking a hike in these beautiful mountains. And the universal concepts that we teach are truly drawn from not just contemplative traditions, but also from psychology, from philosophy, from you know, just good education theory. So there is a lot to draw from that is common to both spiritual traditions and sec in the secular world. Does that help? I mean, there, I, I personally um, think it's important to call that elephant in the room for what it's worth. It, you know, I think it's important when you go into schools not to pretend that this isn't going on, not to pretend that there aren't, aren't going to be some people in the parent body who are upset about it. And that's why ha involving the entire system, uh, the teachers, the administrator, and the parents, and having open dialogue around this, and being able to model these different activities and these different practices so that people are comfortable seeing what they actually are. And again, when I talked about the need for community and ongoing um, supervision, for lack of a better word, of the newcomers who are bringing this into a secular setting, one of the important aspects of that is so that on a monthly basis or a weekly basis or an every couple of week basis, they do get remind, reminders of the importance of keeping this work in the public setting secular. There's one other aspect of that that I want to mention before we go to the next question, which is the kids often also bring this in too. Parents aside, kids will sit in you know, some sort of quiet introspective and they will think they're being asked to pray. And so the kids will bring this in themselves. And so learning to be able to support their family values, support what they are doing at home, but explain that here in school, we're doing something a little bit different is important and we have strategies for doing that. Yes? Uh, you mentioned there is a open awareness aspect to this work um, that requires a bit more work on the teacher's part. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that and what is the difference between that and the more mindfulness-related part? Yeah, you know, I, 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 want, I want to speak to two things. One is this word mindfulness is such a beautiful word, and I love it. And you hear John Kabat-Zinn say the word, and it's just full of beauty and joy. But 
the distinction between mindfulness and open awareness seems to me not to be a real one. So I think what's important, I mean, what the distinction is anchoring practices and which tend in the more open awareness practices and even the anchoring practices do, um, do cross into the open awareness practices. This is, the, this is the blessing and the curse of this. Children often don't have as many layers of just plain psychological, emotional stuff. Sometimes they do, but often they don't, that adults do. So it's not uncommon for them to be able to sit down, relax the muscles in their body, keep their spine straight, and have a really lovely meditation experience. What happens when that happens and the person who's facilitating the experience hasn't had that themselves? When we're really trying to, where some are trying to scale this to a point that every teacher has these skills to be able to lead basic anchoring practices in the classroom, yet other things happen too, which I'm sure is true. Also, you have probably brilliant mathematicians, uh, young ones who are beyond the capacity that their teachers have to. So again, it's about teaching boundaries. It's about teaching the facilitator what is your teaching objective here and giving them opportunities and support in this supervision uh, uh, setting where they can ask somebody who may have a little bit more experience what to do with a particular situation as you would with anything else. So we really try to keep the work where the facilitator's training is limited and needs to be limited into more of the basic anchoring practices and then for people who want to go deeper, to try different things, we encourage them to um, continue to get more adult meditation training and experience. And how do we balance this in a responsible way? How can we do this? Which goes back to that wonderful concept we started about with, which is less dualistic uh, thinking, where we hold both, we understand there's positives and negatives that we're having to balance, and we do so with an open mind and an open heart. Does that help? Thank you. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.